0: As we journey through our uh, text this morning through Second Corinthians, we're going to be looking at Second Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, and we're going to see this, this principle of paradox. It's amazing how paradox or contrast come up so often uh, in Holy Scripture, and the paradox we're going to look at today is that you receive life through death. And this is, a, this is a Christian principle you three see throughout uh, the New Testament. Uh, Jesus teaches his disciples this principle in John chapter 12 where he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, this principle of uh, life through death uh, just recurs throughout Scripture. And we're going to see it today as the Apostle Paul gives something of, again, a personal testimony, a personal defense of his ministry with this whole principle of life through death. So let's go to the Lord and unpack the, the marvels of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 7-12. through Father, we do turn to you in faith and we ask blessings. We, we just want to pause on this Thanksgiving Sunday to thank you for your holy word. Uh, Lord, we are not like people without hope. We are not like people without wisdom. We are not like people without purpose. Your word gives us all of those things. And we turn to it now knowing that it is inerrant. We know that it's inspired. We know that it's infallible. And we know, God, that it will cleanse us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to go deep with you, Lord. We do not want to remain children. We do not want to be sucklings always looking for milk. We want to be carnivores. Christian carnivores who are hungry for the meat of the doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Show us some of those truths today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, 7 through 12 here. And we're going to see here, Paul is kind of pers- points to his personal example of ministry again. And again, we, as every Sunday as we've gone through 2 Corinthians, we keep seeing Paul having to defend himself. Why is he being, having to defend himself? Because he's being attacked. And he, but he's not trying to defend himself in order to promote himself. He's defending himself because he knows if his ministry is discredited, then the false teachers of Corinth are going to take over and the gospel would be doomed in the continent of Europe. Everything is at stake. If you don't believe Paul, you're not a Christian. You're just not a Christian. And this is why the Paul, Paul is willing to suffer so much at the at the hands of such a mediocre church, of such a flawed bunch of people, because he knows how important it is, and because he loves them, and because he knows God loves them, even when they are in error. So let's pick up here with 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12, through 12. I'll read that passage in its entirety. God says, Paul writes, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in your mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. You might find it helpful to look at your home group's HELPS uh, insert, uh, where I've broken this uh, passage down to four different Places here uh, that that really relate to the aspects of Paul's ministry. You see, the uh, and ministry of uh, uh, by extension to every Christian. Uh, you see the condition here in verse four, the contradictions in verses eight through nine, the commission in verses ten through thir- eleven, and then the conclusion in verse 12. So first of all, we see here the condition. And isn't this one of our favorite verses? And this is one reason why I was so excited about finally getting to 2 Corinthians. You know, my ambition is uh, before the Lord comes back to preach through every Old Testament, many of the uh, every New Testament and many of the Old Testament books. And 2 Corinthians, I had never gotten to at this point in time. There's only about, I think, five books of the New Testament I have not yet preached or taught through. Uh, and, and this is one of those passages that I was so excited about 2 Corinthians. All the chapter... F- Four and five are just, they're just such meaty, meaningful passages. Uh, when we struggle, they're, they're sort of like the Psalms. You go back to 2 Corinthians and, and you kind of you get over your struggles. You kind of get your, your hope fixed back on the Lord. And he starts off here, but we have this treasure in earth and vessels. That's our condition so that the surpassing greatness of power will be of God and not of ourselves. Now what's the treasure here? Well, this is the downside of preaching through various passages that you go back to the previous verse and Paul speaks of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Right? That's the treasure that you have. You have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You have truth. And that truth is personified in the person of Christ, and you have Christ. Christ lives in you, Colossians, the hope of glory. We see Paul Paul tells uh, uh, the Colossians also that in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So that's, that's what makes Christians so special. On the outside, we look like everybody else. We may not even be as handsome as everybody else. No offense. But what's inside? That you are vessels of the Holy Spirit. it's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable. Be thankful for that on this Thanksgiving Sunday. But it's humiliating too, isn't it? What does he call you? You You have this in an earthen vessel. All of this marvelous glory. That if people could actually see what was inside of you, they would fall down in worship and in terror. All of that is in a clay pot. Just an ordinary clay pot what does he mean when he says earthen vessels we we know terracotta pots we tend if you are a gardener in particular you understand that but for them that was their basic storage unit okay the idea there of earthen is to uh, uh, bake it was a common pot it was a cheap it was breakable it was easy to replace it was virtually had absolutely no value and you would store everything from food in it to use it as a toilet Okay, as, as the Apostle says uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.20, that these are vessels, some are vessels of earthenware, some are to dishonor, and some to honorable. There are both honorable uses to a pot and dishonorable uses to a pot. All right. So it's just common. When you ever have archaeological digs, they often date uh, the, the dig, and they can know the type of people who live there based by these just discarded pots. They would just throw them away in old dry wells and throw them in the back of their house and this kind of thing. Y'all, it's, it is the Styrofoam Big Mac container of 2,000 years ago. Could I be any more insulting than that? And yet, Adam was formed of the clay, and Adam also had the image of God. There's something sort of miraculous about it, too. But the emphasis here is that we are, as one commentator says, clay pots had no intrinsic value. Their only worth came from the valuables they contained or the service they performed. Because sometimes, they would also store valuables in the clay pots. The Dead Sea Scrolls were stored in clay pots. You see archaeological digs. You see people that, uh, with metal detectors finding clay pots full of Roman coins in England and things like that. My own family, my mother, we, we, we had a few pieces of jewelry that came down through the family, and uh, we had a laundry room, and it had these big cabinets uh, in the laundry room, and she would have all of her garden implements and stuff in these cabinets, and there was just a basic clay pot that she would have up on the shelf that looked like, and she would put the valuables in there. Uh, and every you know, few years, she would come back in and say, Sugar Booga, let me remind you where the valuables are, because <laughs> you know, it's in a clay pot. So if a burglar came in, they're never going to think to look in that. Why would you look in the gardening cabinet to find the jewels? Of course, they will now that I've told the universe. But Yeah, sorry, Mom. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get you another clay pot, right? So it's a good idea, but that, that's kind of his point. On the outside, there's nothing. There's nothing that, that says, wow, what a magnificent person. Look at this a t- terrific appearance. It, we're just simply an earthen vessel. We're just nothing. But, whew, boy, what we have inside of us, now that is something. That is something. That's interesting because um, very often the, uh, 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 Paul is deliberately being self-effacing as well. He's also a clay pot. And it's interesting because the critics, his critics, the false teachers in Corinth, they put a lot on appearance. You know, these sophists, these philosophers who would go from town to town, they'd make money arguing debates or making speeches or whatever. Appearance was real important. They would much, be very much like an actor. You know, they, they had to look the part as well. But you know how many preachers don't look the part? Probably the best ones <laughs> in many ways. And Paul, to them, oh, this guy's an apostle, Jesus commissioned him. He does not look the part. Matter of fact, Paul brings this up um, it, uh, later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says that the, that, that uh, uh, his opponents say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Uh, can you imagine saying that about the Apostle Paul, that we've come to appreciate so much uh, his ministry, his legacy that he left behind? He planted the Church of Europe. And Paul himself says, says in 1 Corinthians, uh, the previous letter. 1 Corinthians 15, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And Timothy says, I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent aggressor. So instead of rejecting this idea of his failures, Paul rather embraces the idea of being a lowly pot. And he says, judge us by the glory that we store inside of us, not of our common appearance. And what's the reason why? Notice the so that. The so that's are always important. He gives an illustration, a point here, and then he brings in a doctrine. So that, and what's the so that there for? The surpassing greatness of the power will be of God. I tell you, last, last service, last week was just a wonderful service. When everybody just sang that last hymn, I just wanted to stand up here for about five minutes and just take it all in. I just kind of felt like the heavens were opening up. It was just such a, a beautiful, beautiful service. And, uh, and the, the, the problem is, is that eventually you have to leave, right? You know, we're just getting little glimpses, though, every now and then of this glory that's within us. But I think one of the points of that, and one of the, we try to do this on every service, is it's not about you. And it's not about me. It's about God. And I just never tire of trying to do what I can to glorify God as we preach the Word of God. And every teaching station of our church uh, seeks to do that. So Paul is consumed with the idea to give God the glory so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves, not of ourselves. Now, we got to be careful here, too. There's there's a false humility out there, right? You know, the false humility looks like something like this, like I'm such a terrible person, and then the other person says, oh, you're not terrible, you're wonderful, and then the person who sinks their temple says, oh, really, tell me more about how wonderful I am. Right, you know, There's a false humility that's actually a true pride. It, it, it kind of acts humble in order to be able to get stokes and praise and, 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 uh, or manipulate or something like that. That's not what we have here at all. There is a genuine humility, humility to the Christian, right? You know you didn't save yourself. You know you weren't seeking God. He found you. And the faith that you have is actually a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that, here we have that point again, so that no man will boast. Paul is so opposed to boasting. And see, the false teachers were boasting all the time, and it's kind of attractive. Wow, those people have some confidence. I think I'm going to follow them. Paul, Paul could walk into a room, based on his appearance, based on his oratory skills, he could walk into a room. He's probably one of those people, like many of us, that you just wouldn't even notice wouldn't notice but boy he had the truth second corinthians he goes on to say in chapter 11 but even if i am unskilled in speech i am not so in knowledge he's like moses moses said lord don't send me i got a stammering tongue god's like you have talked face to face with god you are qualified i make you qualified so we got to look at the treasure, not at the pot. <laughs> look at the people that God chose, right? He did not choose philosophers. He pulled people off of shipping boats to be the apostles. So the terracotta pot, it's the ancient su- supermarket version of the plastic bag. That's who you are. How many plastic bags do you have floating around your garage or that you're going to say, I'm going to take these back and recycle them? They're just worthless, right? Once you use them, you just don't need them anymore. Unless you have a dog. Just to make the illustration even more humble, humiliating. But it's interesting. Our weakness is actually part of God's strategy, and that's the beautiful point. It isn't that God didn't realize that we would be so... uh, uh, Sorry. It isn't that God didn't realize that we would be so hopeless he knew that we would be, and we would rely on Him, and our faith would be on Him. Part of the plan, i hate, you just need to know this, and those of you who are a little bit older kind of understand this, the aches and the pains and the groaning and the difficulties and the medical bills and the things that you're going through are all part of God's plan. They're all part of God's plan. Because it dismisses your pride and puts God on the throne of your life. Then we see here these wonderful contradictions in verses eight through nine, uh, where he says here. First of all, we are we we, he, we are afflicted. Now he, notice he's saying we. So this is kind of an autobiographical uh, testimony here from Paul. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. That idea of crushed is pressured or squeezed. Here, we are afflicted. Life is born for uh, adversity, right? We are afflicted, but we're not crushed. We're not squeezed out. Again, those of you who have a few years on you you, you, you get this. You've been through trials and tribulations, and the nights of fever and the wrecks and everything else in your life. And after a while, that's why old people are just more calm. They just, you know, this too is going to come and this too is going to go. You know, the thing that really irritates old people is bad customer service. <laughs> yeah, you know, that just is really infuriating. Uh, but 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 basically, we're calm. When, you know, the water heater goes out or the child gets the mumps or whatever, you know, we just kind of, we've had enough of this, right? But for, for young people, it's just, oh, I can't believe this is happening to me. God wants, wants you to settle down because you are afflicted in every way, but you're not crushed. You're not crushed. Now, Paul, of course, is speaking about affliction that comes through the gospel, but there's a life application there to the rest of life as well. He, he is perplexed but not despairing. I like Merrill Tenney translate this, bewildered, but not befuddled, right? We're perplexed, but not despairing. Let me, just, let me just be honest with you. In this life, we're going to lose. We're going to lose. And if you don't believe me, just check the news, Right? This is no longer a Christian country. We are going to lose, but we fight nevertheless. It's always been this way. And as you can imagine, I found an illustration with J.R.R. Tolkien with The Lord of the Rings. Of course, Tolkien was shaped. He was an orphan, and then he fought in the trenches of World War I. If you don't think that'll change a man's life, growing up without a daddy and then seeing all these other people massacred on the battlefield, and he wrote this, and there's this wonderful part. This is why you ought to read the books, not just go to the movies. Uh, there's a closing t- in the telling of the Lord of the Rings. Erwin, who was an elf, married Aragorn, who was human, and they knew he wasn't going to live as long as her. She could live for thousands of years. He's gonna, I think he lived to be 180, something like that. She, he eventually died. So she goes to her former homeland there of Lothlorien, back where Galadriel was in charge, to die. She, she's, her heart's broken. She's gone there. It's a very so, sober, sad scene because you get to know these characters all along. She goes there to die. And one author says this, Heading into the fading heart of the elven country to die alone, this place, once so full of life has sustained by the, and sustained by the Lady of Light, has become a glorious ruin. For Galadriel, like the rest of her kin, have left the world to the rule of man, the elves and all their splendor have reached their end. Years before, when this forest was filled with vitality and effervescence, Gabrielle had uttered these words to Frodo. Together, through the ages of the world, we have fought the long defeat. We are fighting a long defeat. It's a, if you're military, it's a, a rear guard action. Okay? I don't know what the future of this church is going to be. Hopefully we are vibrantly worshiping the Lord and glorifying them to the day that Christ comes back. But there's very few of us. Think about the church you were raised in. The church that I was raised in as a child is totally apostate right now. J.P. McLean may be one of the only ones of us that actually worshiped in a church that's 300 years old and still preaching the gospel, Independent Presbyterian of Savannah. Now, that doesn't mean we give up. Matter of fact, we ought to exhaust ourselves to make sure that doesn't happen. But we are fighting a long defeat. Nevertheless, we are perplexed, but we are not despairing. So we are to do our best as soldiers of Christ. As Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. Every one of you have to ministry. Because we are going to eventually lose in the end. By the way, when we lose, we actually gain. I mean, you know that part, right? I'm talking about the stuff in this world. I can't wait till heaven. But heaven may be a little while off for some of us. We are fighting a long defeat. But you do your job in that long defeat. And what God will do is he will reward you when we do get to heaven. We're persecuted but not forsaken. That idea of persecuted is actually being pursued or hunted down. Now, Paul is being hunted down by false teachers. uh, King David was being hunted down by crazy King Saul, right? 1 Samuel 23 says this, "...David stayed in the wilderness and the strongholds and remained in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand him over to him." Notice who, who was protecting David was God. God's the same one who's protected David. He's the same one who protected you. Uh, he was hunted down, but he was not forsaken. Psalm 141 speaks of this, as Paul, uh, David says, My eyes are toward you, O God, the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave me defenseless. Keep me from the jaws of the trap which they have set for me and from the snares of those who do iniquity. Then we're struck down, but we are not destroyed, okay? This idea of struck down as is in a weapon. We are struck down with a weapon. And, of course, you know the greatest illustration here, Right? when Obi-Wan Kenobi <laughs> faces down Darth Vader, that epic line, right? And we're confused. We don't understand what's going on. We're not sure about how all this Jedi stuff works. But he says this. See if I can say it in my best Obi-Wan Kenobi voice. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. That was a really lame Obi-Wan Kenobi voice. But you get the point. You know how biblical that is? You know how biblical that is? Devil, you strike me down, and I will become more powerful than you ever imagined. Right now, you are the victim of demons. When you die, you will become the judge of demons. They actually fear your death. Remember in Screwtape letters? letters uh, Screwtape and uh, Wormtongue, they're writing back and forth, and uh, Screwtape's charge uh, dies. He dies. I think he dies in the Blitz. He's in London, and, and the human dies, Right? And uh, his uncle was furious. How did you let him die? Th- th- that makes it so much worse. We want to just toy with him for a while, like a cat with a hamster, you know? How did you let him die? Because it's in death that they fear us the most. We become the judge. Every demonic activity, every spiritual, bit of spiritual warfare that you've received, every temptation that has ever come from the hand of the dark forces... Will be used as evidence against them in the great trial, and you're the one that's going to stand as witness and stand as judge and get them. You will have your day. You will have your day. So we're struck now, but we are not destroyed. Okay? This literally, it's interesting, this has literally happened to Paul at Lystra, right? Acts 14, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. I mean, they literally, I mean, they stoned him to death. And he got up and he went back into the city afterwards. Here's one of these reasons again that uh, Paul. Paul says that there's a weakness that's important in your life that's part of God's design in order that you give God the glory. And he goes on to the Second Corinthians, the Corinthians 12 and gives this mar- marvelous example of what happened to him. Can I read this in its entirety to you? Because I mean, it's riveting. I just don't want to take anything out of it. So Paul says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up into the third heaven what's the third heaven we learned this in men's bible study you got the atmosphere is the first heaven and then you got the stars and outer space is the, the second heaven the third heaven is where god reigns the invisible heaven the other realm all right and you know and and i know how such a man whether the, in the body or apart from the body i do not know god knows was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak on behalf of such a man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if, I do wi- for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking in truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger, which could be an angel, a demon, of Satan to torment, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implore the Lord three times, he even remembers how many times he's prayed about this, that it might leave me. And he has said to me, "My God has said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Same principle, power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly then, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I may be well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for uh, Christ's sake. But when I am weak, I am strong. Wow. So Paul had this amazing vision, and God knew Paul, and Paul thought, you know, I don't give this vision to other people. You have got it. So to make you humble, we're going to have this messenger, this thorn in the flesh. Our frailty provides a platform for the demonstration of God's incredible power. We all have these issues, don't we? I mean, even the most handsome among us, there's something going on in our life. Like Michael Cox. I mean, that guy's a real looker, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a handsome man right now. But God gave him such totally awkward social skills, it keeps him funny. Am I right? I am. I'm right. It's true, you know? <laughs> Sometimes I think I'm funny. <laughs> so <laughs> huh. that was very unpresbyterian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Weakness, your weaknesses, your pain, your suffering is all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's plan. Now I'm not saying you go go hunt it down. Enough will come your way, trust me. But God just cannot use unbroken people. He cannot use unbroken people, or he's going to be very limited in how much he is. He's going to break you. So work to break in yourself, to avoid perhaps some of that. We remain weak, God remains strong, we remain humble, God remains glorious. Now we see here the commission that comes to us from 10 through 11 here. He says that uh, always caring about the, di- the body, the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we, also live, we who also live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, the interesting thing here is that the New American Standard has got it rightly translated as the dying of Jesus because it's not the word for death, it's the word for the process of dying. Uh, As Bartlett says, Paul's meaning is that one uh, who was observed in this life as a Christian apostle would see constantly repeated a process analogous analogous to the killing of Jesus, okay? So there ought to be this, this dying to self that's so constant. It's the way Jesus lived and the way Jesus died. There's something that marks us out as being different, and it's this carrying around the dying of Jesus Within us. And why is it like that? I mean, that seems like a strange commission, right? But why would we, as followers of Christ, expect better than what Christ got? He was killed for our sins. Notice how many times that is mentioned. You know, we often think uh, God loves us, He sent His only Son. That's true. But you know, another reason why Jesus died for your sins is He hates your sins so much, He was willing to die for them. Don't ever take your sins flippantly. Don't be cavalier about them. They're horrible. God hates them. That's why he died for them. And because he, he loves you so much. And then he gets, why we care about this dying of Jesus? So that, there's another so that, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. Life comes through death. That's the principle of Christianity. Christianity. And we're carrying out this body. Uh, it's, it's sort of a, it's a lifestyle of carrying out the dying of Jesus. This should be the way of our life. It should be the words that are on our tongue. Our Lord died for our sins to open up the way to heaven. And he says here that, and, and, and actually, we demonstrate this through the persecution that we see. We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. You know, so he's, uh, it costs you to be a Christian. It should cost you to be a Christian in many ways. If it's not costing you anything, you may not really be a Christian. Mark 10 says this. This idea of delivered over is, again, a principle of Christ. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's talking to his disciples. He says, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be, what? Delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. There could not be a clearer presentation of the gospel than what Jesus and his disciples looked at him and said, "What? <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? We don't get old Jesus. Go on with the old die crucifixion thing, you know." And it came back to him later, <laughs> right? Why? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in us. What a powerful thing that is. So the ordeals ordeals of our life are no accident, no curse, no random act. The purpose behind them is that that we can experience these dying moments in order to give God the glory. This is Paul, Galatians chapter 2, 20, right? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. We're united with Christ, including his sufferings. It's a wonderful story. You know George Mueller? uh, I love the George Mueller story. George Mueller was a German living in England. He actually came to be a missionary to England. We need more of those these days. And he had gone through a number. He was actually kind of a hellion and a... a, uh, a wild man. He loved going to Bible studies so that he can mimic Christians after the Bible study and make fun of them. And we give him plenty of material. Uh, but uh, they, he loved making fun of Christians. We went to a Bible study one day and got saved. Okay? He wanted to be a missionary. He came and he started orphanages. He was just burdened by the terrible condition of so many of the orphans in, in London. And there's this wonderful account of George M- Mueller. Uh, uh, they, uh, they, they, they had 300, st- 300 children. Uh, and they brought them all into the cafeteria, and the house lady said, there's no food. There's nothing to give them for breakfast. And Mueller says, have them ha- give them ha- let them have a seat. And he prays a blessing and just waited. And then there's a knock on the door, and it's a baker. And the baker came to the door and said, Dr. Mueller, he said, I could not sleep last night. I was so excessively burdened that you might need some bread, so I stayed up all night and made all this bread. George Mueller says, thank you, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> you know? So they bring in all the bread, and they serve all the bread, and then there's a knock on the door, and it's a dairyman. And the dairyman says, my wagon broke down uh, out front, and, uh, and this milk's going to spoil Do you want this milk. And he brings in 10 cans of milk, enough to feed three, uh, 300 people. And he never asked for a dime for his ministry. He just lived by faith. For well, George Mueller, uh, someone asked him, how, "How how is it that he could provide for so many thousands of children, over 10,000 children during his lifetime? Uh, and he said, the response was this, uh, there was a day when I died. And he hung his head even lower and said, when I died to George Mueller. We just got to die to self. We got to die to self, and the reminder of that, constantly living this death, so that we can enjoy life, is many of the trials and the tribulations, the weaknesses of our own flesh. For Paul says in Philippians 1.21, "For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." There's going to be a reward for that, and because of that, we should have joy as we're dying to self, right? So then, conclusion, verse 12, so death works in us, but life in you. And we see that truth when we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And how does God do that? How does God show the world this truth? By using ordinary clay pots, styrofoam Big Mac containers, plastic bag people. But the content that's inside of us is glorious. Paul actually started his conversation with Corinthians and 1 Corinthians when he reminded them this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not So that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that is written, Let him who boast, boast in the Lord. Father, on this Thanksgiving Sunday, our boast is in the Lord. For truly, a grateful people need to be able to recognize that they deserve nothing but receive everything as, as as a grace act from you. So we do come before you, God, recognizing our weaknesses, God. Forgive us for complaining so about them. Help us to fight against them, to do our best, but also, Lord, help us to understand that part of your purpose to make us useful is to be able to carry about this glorious truth in these jars of clay. Help us to be excellent jars of clay in Christ's name.